You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, California the heart of Silicon Beach. Thank you for joining us. Please be seated. We got a great show for you today. And it was ever a day to listen to CLBR. This is it. Um, we have so much going on today. Um, we have had scheduled several weeks ago uh, Susan Hennessy, who is a fellow in National Security and Governance Studies at the Brooklyn Institute and managing editor of the Lawfare blog. Um, and she has a quite interesting background. She was a former attorney in the Office of General Counsel at the National Security Agency and um, has worked in national security matters for a number of years. Um, and she's joining us at a time when um, cybersecurity and national security uh, are just blazing all over the front pages. Uh, and today in Berlin, uh, a film is premiering on the Stuxnet virus that is revealing that the U.S. had planned a massive cyber attack against Iran should the negotiations in the um, uh, with Iran over the, its nuclear program failed. Uh, in addition, uh, we have an order that has been released uh, demand, requiring that Apple assist the government uh, in creating a backdoor to its encryption for its iPhone. And Apple has, um, Tim Cook has, chairman of CEO of Apple has issued a public statement saying no. And so who better to have with us today than Susan Hennessy? Hen- uh, Susan, are you with us? I am. Thanks so much for having me. Um, quite an interesting day, don't you think? It is indeed. Um, I'm sure your phone is ringing. Any event, um, why don't we start <laughs> with the beginning? Tell us a little bit about um, Lawfare and, and how you came about the, to join them. Uh, so Lawfare is a um, national security blog that was essentially started by a couple of law professors about five or six years ago um, and now uh, addresses kind of a wide range of national security legal issues um, 
everything from Guantanamo Bay military commissions to cybersecurity, sort of whatever um, the interesting uh, legal issues of the day are. Um, and so, as you mentioned, I um, have been serving in the government um, with the NSA for a number of years and um, decided to make the transition to um, to do some more uh public work um, at Brookings, where I'm a national security fellow, and then also um, helping to run the site. And when, just out of curiosity, you know, when you're at the NSA, I mean, are you allowed to say you're working at the NSA? You are, yeah. I think there's oh. a little bit of sort of confusion over how, um, so people who are covert are covert, and they are not allowed to say everyone else is allowed to say, um, although typically people say they work at the Department of Defense, which is accurate, um, but True. to sort of avoid uncomfortable questions. I, I just, I, you know, I have family that lives in Columbia, Maryland, you know, near, not too far from Fort Meade where the NSA is. And you know, they have neighbors that work there and they say, well, I just work at Fort Meade. They won't say, or I work with the government. They never really say they work in the NSA. But any event, um, so we, we brought you on here, um, because in last December, uh, in the middle of the budget deal that was signed by President Obama, um, Slipped in was a the Cyber Information um, Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, um, which kind of got in passed and without a whole lot of notice. And you really distinguished yourself as, as trying to tackle um, CISA, you know, it's the abbreviation, um, you know, head on and quite in quite great detail. So I commend you for your work there. But let's start with um, what exactly is CISA and um, why why was it needed? Right. So so first, um, I think to sort of address the notion, um, so CISA was ultimately passed into law um, as part of the Omnibus Act. Um, however, it was um, deba- debated and passed by both uh, the House and Senate independently. Um, once both the House and Senate had passed their versions of the bill, because there was a difference, they then went to conference to resolve their bills. And then that ultimate um that ultimate bill was what was included in the omnibus. So it was sort of, it was extensively debated ahead of time. So it wasn't, it wasn't quite as underhanded um, as it might seem. Um, but essentially sort of from the outset, um, you know, private industry and, um, and the government uh, had, have reached kind of a cybersecurity crisis point. It seems like every day we're seeing um, a new hack. Uh, you know, we've seen just in the past week uh, a hack of uh personal information from the FBI uh, and DHS. Um, you know, certainly the OPM hack on the government side has gotten a lot of attention. Um, and then, you know, Target, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a shorter list to name uh, those companies that have not been subject to, um, to major cybersecurity breaches at this point. Um, and so CISA is really um, about an attempt to uh, overcome some of the barriers that had existed in the law that... Um, serve to sort of disincent some responsible cybersecurity behavior, and then also to create incentives for um, some more responsible action, more collective action, um, so that we can sort of begin to uh, develop a framework to, to address the kind of proliferation of cybersecurity threats. Now, CISA had some strong support from the business community, Chamber of Commerce, and um, National Cable and Telecommunications Association, but also had a notable opposition from the tech community. Um, the 
a um, computer and communications industry association whose members include Google, Amazon, Facebook, Yahoo, um, were opposed. Twitter, Yelp, and Apple were also opposed. And Edward Snowden said a vote for CISA was a vote against the Internet. Um, that's quite strong opposition. And, uh, and I, I, in your blog post, you, you try to address, you know, that, those, that opposition head on. And, um, what, what, what do you think was, what do you think was driving this strong opposition? Right. So, look, I think sort of um, any areas of the Internet and privacy are sort of um, automatically catalysts for very strong emotions. Um, and right. So it's not, it's not unsurprising that there would be um, very sort of strong and strident positions here. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's important to recognize that there are sort of um, there are a number of elements. Uh, to CISA. So one is an authorization for monitoring. Um, and so this is designed to, um, to facilitate uh, companies being able to uh, look in their systems, know their systems um, in ways that previous laws had prevented them from doing so. Um, the second is, uh, is an authorization, though not liability protection, uh, to take defensive measures on their systems. This is sort of responsible countermeasures um, within their own systems. Um, and the third is information sharing with the government. And so information sharing with the government is um, the thing that sort of drew the most uh, criticism. Um, and so it sort of breaks down into a couple of different places. Um, one, there are people who are sort of just concerned that um, by affirmatively authorizing information sharing with the government, um, notably it wasn't banned before. There was just no sort of specific place that it was authorized by law. Um, by authorizing the, uh, information sharing with the government um, and then um, setting up a portal by which this information would be shared, not only with civilian entities like DHS, but also um, the Department of Defense, which includes NSA, um, uh, the DNI, DOD, um, uh, you know, I think there are seven designated federal entities. Um, and so there was sort of, um, there's a perception, uh, that this is essentially just private industry is now going to take all of your personal information, um, and funnel it straight to the government, um, so that they can spy on you. Uh, I don't think that that's an accurate, uh, reading of the law. Uh, the law includes uh, a great many number of privacy protections, um, and protections sort of specific to those charges. Um, and also, uh, I think sort of a close examination of the law demonstrates that the kind of information that we're talking about sharing here is not really the sorts of, um, uh, privacy value laden content of communications, right? So it's not your emails that are being shared. It's things like, um, you know, uh, malicious code attachments, that sort of, um, that sort of thing. And in your post, you, you, you start with a, a kind of a fundamental argument that it, cybersecurity actually is an element of privacy because if your information isn't secure, I mean, you're definitely, it's definitely, your communications definitely aren't private because if anyone can get a hold of them. Right. So I think that this is something um, that is really important for both the privacy community and sort of the business community to take on. Um, you know, when you share your information with a, with a company, um, they have obligations to keep it safe. And so um, part of privacy um, is having your information protected. And part of having your information protected involves um, 
some degree of accessing that information in order to uh, monitor and defend against cybersecurity threats. And, and so in walking through the, the various elements and as to why CISA, you know, necessarily deserves support, or at least you know, for the time being, it seems to be a good approach. Um, the first thing you said was you dealt with the fact that the current law is ambiguous, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Can you explain that? Right. So uh, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, ECPA, as it's known, um, uh, it's sort of it's a number of different acts. It sort of it includes um, the Wiretap Act, the Stored Communications Act. But essentially, uh, the Wiretap the Wire uh, ECPA has sort of a broad prohibition against monitoring uh, the content of communications. And so, it, basically, it says you you can't monitor the content of communications unless you fall into these sort of designated um, exceptions. And the problem is there's not just civil liability if you um, if you violate ECPA. There's also criminal liability, right? So you could be, um, if you undertake certain types of, sec- of security monitoring um, and you do so in the wrong manner or you um, you fail to understand uh, the scope of the exceptions or a judge at a later date determines that you were incorrect about the, the applicability of the exceptions, you might not only be liable for, you know, significant um, uh, civil damages, but you might have also committed a crime. Um, so these are really serious laws. Um, and the problem is that uh, ECPA includes all of these terms that are just not all that well-defined. Um, so the first of which is content. You aren't allowed to, uh, to intercept the content of communications. That's not hugely defined, right? It says anything that's, uh, that's the substance or a purport or meaning of a communication. So... Right, considering all of the different types of information that's shared over various networks um, at different times, what types of information are you even uh, is even covered by ECPA? What types of information isn't covered by ECPA? Um, and then the bigger sort of issues is um, is how the exceptions end up applying. So uh, essentially, there's a consent exception, right? So if you agree to have someone monitor your communications, that's allowed. Um, we're seeing a number of courts, primarily out of California, um, sort of reinventing the scope of, uh, of what the consent exception looks like. So we're seeing both Facebook and Google, relatively sophisticated actors in this field, um, both being uh, both losing cases um, in the Eastern District, of, uh, in the Northern District of California. Um, so these are companies that sort of are enormously sophisticated and have made good faith efforts to obtain consent for monitoring. Um, in, in one of those cases, it was for uh, for advertising purposes. Um, and a court later saying, no, you didn't get enough consent. You needed, you needed to, to share more information. Um, so that, that sort of is another area in which um, it's not entirely clear what the rules might look like. Um, and then the, the big sort of concern here is also third-party providers. Um, there is a lot of ambiguity about... Uh, when you, as a, an electronic communication service provider who have what's called the rights and properties exception, when you hire someone else to do cybersecurity on your behalf, how is that party protected? What services are they able to provide? What kind of notice do you have to, do you have to, um, extend to your users and customers about these third parties. Um, and so we really entered a landscape by which, you know, in a litigation of, uh, averse culture, People are afraid, companies are afraid to take responsible cybersecurity action on their own systems um, because they don't know when uh, and under what circumstances they might violate this law. And so CISA clarifies that. And uh, But another point that got 
a lot of opposition was is the whole concept that you're creating a monitory mechanism and um, that somehow insulating companies from liability um, encourages them to to share information and to um, start monitoring and, and snooping on people. You know that was kind of the the over the kind of the the in this very short, probably not very accurate summary <laughs> of the opposition. And 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 you try to address that um, for one. Actually, you needed to create the li- the liability immunity to encourage sharing information. Can you explain that? Right. So um, both monitoring and sharing of information are entitled to liability uh, protection. Essentially, it means no one can sue you. Um, and right. both of the authorizations include the terms notwithstanding any other law. So this means that this is sort of the supreme law. It doesn't matter if any if any other law that exists out there that might conflict. This is the law. You are allowed to do it. However, there is a pretty big limitation included in the bill, and that is for cybersecurity purposes. So you can monitor for cybersecurity purposes. You can share for cybersecurity purposes. And cybersecurity purposes are defined relatively narrowly within the act. And so a lot of the concern out there about, oh, this is going to entitle companies to sort of engage in widespread privacy-invading monitoring, that's not, that's not really true. And so, um, and to the extent that, uh, that a company engages in monitoring that falls outside of the definition of a cybersecurity purpose, they are not, they're no longer entitled to liability protection. Um, and so they can be sued. Um, and so, so I think that it's, it's sort of important to understand that um, while liability protection is enormously important in terms of um, actually effectuating authorization, um, it's also, the, the scope here is, is a limited scope. And you also explained that currently in place, there is a platform being used by Department of Homeland Security um, for this type of sharing of information. And that it, the way it is set up actually has certain kind of structural protections to prevent abuse. Right. And so this is something that I think um, a lot of people had sort of overlooked uh, at the, the time that CISA was passed. Um, and this is uh, essentially the portal. Um, so one weird feature of CISA is that it authorizes information sharing. Um, however, it's not really clear that information sharing was ever not authorized, right? So, so sort of what is it doing? Um, and, and it furthermore, it gives this, this liability protection, this very strong liability protection, so long as you share pursuant to this portal. Um, and the portal is a system that is housed within the Department of Homeland Security, which is a civilian agency, um, and something called the NPPD, which is uh, the National Protection and Programs Directorate, which is a great sort of bland bureaucratic name that doesn't sound like anything, but actually it is DHS's cyber operations wing. Um, and so that's where sort of uh, DHS, the, the, the real meat of DHS's cyber operations occur. So essentially how the portal works um, is that it develops uh, what's called a sticks and taxi profile. And I, I won't get overly technical on it, but um, but it's sort of, it puts out fields um, that allows companies to, on a voluntary basis, um, submit different types of information. Um, and those fields are sort of, are geared towards only collecting information that, um, that one, uh, is related to a cybersecurity threat. So things like certain ranges of IP addresses, et cetera. Um, and also it's, uh, it's designed to reject any information that, uh, that might contain information that is not 
uh, related to a cybersecurity threat, right? Um, so this is, I think in my, in my piece, I said that this is like, you know, if you tried to enter in your favorite animal in a credit card field, it would just, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't accept it. Um, so that's roughly how, uh, how the portal works, right? It's designed to only intake information, uh, that it's fully authorized to intake. Um, it then has a number of mechanisms, um, sort of privacy protection, protective mechanisms. So a number of, um, of sort of automated screens and then also a process by which it can take information uh, that potentially contains private information um, that sort of that can't be uh, screened on an automated basis and, and puts it to a human analyst to ensure uh, that that information is minimized before it's passed on to the rest of uh, the designated federal agencies. Now, one of the criticism or I guess challenges raised by those opposing CISA is that there's you know there's no evidence that it would have helped prevent any of the recent attacks that we've had. Um, is, is there any validity to that point, or is that missing the point? So look, um, it's a little bit. Uh, this is this is a relatively sort of common impulse, right? Anytime a law is passed, you go back to the last thing and you say, "But would it have defended this specific right. thing?" I, I don't know, um, right? Certainly, right. in How some do you case, that? Yes, yeah. no, maybe. Look, this is this is a question of the low hanging fruit. Um, most uh, cybersecurity attacks are not uh, are not happening by uh, sophisticated nation state actors exploiting your zero day. It's people who like didn't update their computer because they wanted to keep watching Netflix for the day. Um, you know, I mean, it's sort of it's a basic lack of cyber hygiene, and also it's a lack of information sharing, right? So when, um, you know, when the banking sector is seeing a particular type of, uh, of threat coming in, right, they're seeing um, uh, a spear phishing email that executes a code and they catch it, um, it's important for them to be able to share certainly with the rest of the financial sector, right. financial services sector, but also with Target, with, with all kinds of other people, hey, we have this. Uh, we have this uh, this code, this line of code that we know does something bad. Stick it in your screens too. Make sure that you're defending against it too, just to put us in a place of um, a sort of a, a better collective defensive posture. Now, is this going to prevent all cybersecurity attacks? It's certainly not. Um, but you know, it, it, it's going to prevent some, um, and it's also going to raise the cost. Right now, it is. So incredibly easy to execute these kinds of attacks, and um, and just taking sort of the, the you know the baseline responsible steps of sharing information um, and deploying responsible defensive measures on one's own network, um, you know that's going to raise the cost uh, to to malicious actors. It's going to make them make it more expensive for them. It's going to make them uh, need to develop more sophisticated tools. And you know sort of anyone who's participated in the military or the intelligence community or any other sort of place where this plays out, um, you know, understands that when you raise the cost to your adversary, uh, they do less bad things to you because it costs them more money, more time, more resources, um, or it makes it easier for them to get caught. And it's important that you highlight costs because um, one thing that this takes care of costs for this radio station is our advertisers. And we're going to take a short break to get a word from them. Um, You're listening to um, Susan Hennessy on Cyberlaw and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. We'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Are you paying too much for your paid advertising? Or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? I'm David Ogletree, president of WME Training. Did you know that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average? At WME Training, we can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the marketing experts at wmetraining.com. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investments. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Siamo di nuovo parlando con Susan Hennessy. Um, in Italian, we are talking again with Susan Hennessy, who actually studied Italian at UCLA, correct? I did. I probably butchered the language, but I thought at least make an attempt. But um, so we spent a lot of time talking about CISA. And um, as I mentioned, Edward Snowden said a vote for CISA was against a vote against the Internet. What would you say to him? Um, so I'm not sure that I um, would sort of recognize Edward Snowden as a um, an expert in cyber policy. Um, and frankly, I don't even know what it means, like what a vote against the Internet means. Um, I think it's sort of it's trying to capture this this vague sense of anytime the government gets more information about you, um, they are going to use it to violate your civil liberties. Um, right. That's kind of that's like the knee jerk gut response to this. Um I don't know what to say in response to that, right? Um, we are now an increasingly online society. Um, companies now have to operate and operate uh, responsibly and within the law online. Um, the government, just like we have, uh, just like the government has an obligation to um, have police officers policing uh, the streets and um, and has an obligation to adopt a series of rules that keep people safe in the real world. There's also a responsibility that they keep people safe online. Um, so this bill is really an effort to um, to try and uh, and take sort of the first common step uh, uh, measures towards that. Um, so look, there there is um, a community of sort of I don't know I'm I'm saying privacy advocates although I don't it, it encompasses a very large group of people that probably True. have a lot of different uh, beliefs about things. Um, but frankly, no bill was going to make them happy. Um, the, they were going to have exactly the same uh, kind of objection regardless of what the terms look like. Um, 
I, I would venture that Edward Snowden may be one of those people. Um, you know, that said, um, I, I don't think that their perspective should be ignored. Um, and I think that the, the ultimate bill incorporates a lot of privacy protections. I think that somebody who examines the law, who examines the portal, um, who examines the terms of use that um, the DHS is publicizing, which, by the way, they're all out. There's no, this is not secret. This is not in an NSA skiff. This is online. Um, anyone who sort of who, who examines the, the material, I think, can take comfort in realizing is that, this is really not the kind of information that's being shared here is really not the kind of information, um, you know, that they have to be concerned about. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you, are you saying that people in Washington should actually make judgment on policy based on facts? Right. I know it's revolutionary. Um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to wrap my, my head around that. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I, I yeah I say that facetiously, but yeah, so often it, you know the policy is done by soundbite and not on substance, and which is a challenge, and obviously in areas such as ours. Now, one question I have, given your background, it, it, without goes without saying, is quite unique, but. And obviously, your back, your work with the NSA, I imagine, opens a lot of doors for you and gives you a lot of credibility in some sectors. But other sectors, I imagine, there are people who would, would view that would view you with resistance. I guess you know, in terms of the civil liberties community, for example, um, do you find that, that there's resistance to you because of your arguments, because of your background, or are you dismissed because, well, she's from the NSA? What do you expect? All right. So look, I, I think there are always fringe people who sort of, um, you know, they don't care what anybody who's ever worked for the government has to say, um, right. you know, and there are probably people who, you know, will salute any flag anywhere and are just convinced that the government can do no wrong. Um, so, right. Those people certainly exist. Um, I would say that there are plenty of, um, of thoughtful, constructive um you know, sort of civil liberties-minded, privacy-minded uh, individuals who are uh, committed to uh, to getting uh, to the right answer, to the right policy answers, and so um, you know they understand that sort of you know bringing their uh, their ideological backgrounds or or sort of their commitments to particular values, um, you know that the goal here is is just to get to the right answer, and that that requires engaging in a dialogue, engaging in a productive dialogue. Um, and that, you know, the government's voice is, is an important one. Um, so I, you know, yes, certainly there are people who I think, um, see me as nothing more than a, um, than a shill for the NSA. But, um, you know, by and large, I think, um, you know, people who actually have jobs to do understand that, uh, you know, you have to work with all different kinds of people in order to get that work done. Understood. Now, um, the front, you know, the, the front page of you know, all the internet um, papers and Twitter feeds these today is over the current battle between the government and Apple over yeah. an court order under a very unique statute, which you you kind of tweeted about. Um, can you explain the statute and what exactly Apple has been ordered to do? 
So I am um, I'm delighted that the Internet has discovered the All Rights Act of 1789. Um, it is certainly not a new law. It is actually a bedrock legal principle. Um, and so uh, it's certainly nothing new to lawyers. It's certainly nothing new uh, to individuals who work within the government. Um, but apparently it is uh, a surprise to some. Um, so essentially what the All Rights Act is, is it's... Um, uh, it's sort of, it's a gap-filling law. It essentially says that courts, um, so the Supreme Court and all courts established for acts of Congress, um, are allowed to issue, quote, all writs necessary or inappropriate in the aid of their respective jurisdictions. Um, and so basically what that means is federal courts are allowed to compel individuals and companies to assist in carrying out the orders. Um, you know, without the power of all writs, you know, the court orders are not worth anything more than the paper they're printed on, right? So, right. so a court can say, um, you know, I find under the Fourth Amendment that there is you know, probable cause, et cetera, to, to look inside this house, um, you need to also have the power to tell someone you have to open the door, right? right. Um, so, so all rights is, um, is a provision that's, you know, existed almost as long as the United States um, that essentially is, is intended to be sort of a gap-filling measure. So all writs functions um, so that it only exists when there isn't a statute directly on point. Um, and it basically just says that, hey, whenever the court effectuates the uh, issue of the warrant, they also have this kind of extra power, this sort of surplus power to say, hey, anybody who uh, you can also issue orders to make people help you like give uh, meaning or effectuate the warrant. Right. Um, so that's, you know, right. So th this is the law, you know, going back uh, you know, well over 100 years. Um, then in, uh, the, but the sort of relevant case here is, uh, is a 1977 case, uh, called USV New York Telephone Company. Uh, and this is when the Supreme Court determined, one, they reaffirmed the scope of the All Rights Act, and two, um, they determined that the All Rights Act, uh, did apply to, uh, ordering third parties to facilitate the execution of search warrants. So in that case, it was a telephone company, so basically telling a telephone company that they have to assist in installing a, in installing a pen register, uh, to effectuate a wiretap. Um, there's been a number of cases holding that this uh, this precise provision um, uh, requires companies to unlock locked phones. Um, so uh, the way this has worked sort of over the past, I don't know, 10 years, uh, however long the iPhones have been around, um, is that Apple has uh, required that the government come to them with a warrant. Uh, so they maintain the capacity to unlock an iPhone. Um, and uh, they don't do it voluntarily. They don't do it for everybody. Um, but they say, hey, when, when the government comes to us with a warrant and it's signed and we can verify and sort of make sure that it, that it meets all the legal bars, we will provide this service by which we unlock a phone. Um, as uh, sort of the technology has, has moved and, and sort of um, the question is uh, sort of a, is the phone pre-iOS 7 or post-iOS 7, um, Apple has declined to maintain that capability, right? So they um, essentially, and I'm sort of cartooning here, and I'm sure any technologist on the listening right now is like gonna, about to scream, but essentially <laughs> how it works is that um, Apple uh, maintains kind of an alternate operating system, right? So whenever you turn on your iPhone, your operating system powers up, it looks for, uh, for Apple's signing key, it looks for your unique identifier, and your, um, your uh, passcode that you punch in, it says, okay, we're good to go, thumbs up, and it decrypts the phone. Apple uh, previously maintained sort of this alternate software. Um, whenever they plugged it in, uh, the alternate software said, eh, don't worry so much about the passcode. Let's just open the phone up. Um, 
it, it's, to my knowledge, like exists in a single room in Cupertino, California. This is not like a widespread capability. Um, you know, there are a limited number of engineers who know how to operate this. Um, you know, Apple only provides the service pursuant to a court order. Uh, so and we have two cases. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No. So we have two cases. So one is um, is a case in the Eastern District of New York uh, back in October. This is a case involving um, an, an iOS 7 phone of a methamphetamine dealer. Um, so the government asked for Apple to uh, open that phone, and Apple declined, even though they uh, continued to uh, maintain the capability to do so. Um, that case actually was never uh, never came to a conclusion because uh, the defendant pled guilty, although the government is still trying to argue the issue is not moot. Um, now, moving into California, this Central District of California um, has just uh, uh, issued an order. Uh, essentially, the government is making the argument and is asking the court to order um, Apple to provide it assistance under the same provision of the All Rights Act, um, but not not just assistance to plug in the device, the unlocking device that they already have, but to actually create the software, right? So to create the software that they've long maintained um, to, to now create it in the realm of um, of, of the iOS 9 uh, uh, device, which is the device at issue, um, one of the phones used by um, one of the uh, shooters in San Bernardino. And yeah, the, the order says Apple's reasonable technical assistance, okay, so that begs the question right there, reasonable, shall accomplish the following three important functions. It will bypass or disable the auto erase function, whether or not it's been enabled. It will enable the FBI to submit passcodes to the subject device for testing electronically via the physical device port. Um, Bluetooth or et cetera or other protocol available on the subject device and it will ensure that when the FBI, FBI submits passcodes to the subject device, software running on the device will not purposely introduce any additional delay between passcode attempts beyond what is incurred by the Apple hardware. Apple's reasonable technical assistance may include but is not limited to providing the FBI with a signed iPhone software file. Um, and then it goes on. So uh, how is this something that is unprecedented as Apple contends or are these type of orders issued um, frequently? Right. So in this case, the government is not asking Apple to unlock the phone. Um, what they're asking Apple to do is to um, provide uh, uh, the software capability. And they're actually telling Apple, you know, we, we have a suggestion as to how you might do this, but you do it anyway you need to, um, to, uh, to disable the wipe request, right? So the government has the phone in its possession. Um, it theoretically has 10 guesses, right? There are thousands of potential combinations of numbers. Right. Um, it has about 10 guesses, right? So this is why it can't, um, what's called force attack, right? This is not a back door. This is just kicking in the front door real hard. Um, and so what they're asking, um, what they're asking Apple to do is, um, is not only to disable the feature by which after 10 uh, sort of false attempts, the entire device uh, is wiped. Um, they're also, uh, the, the device also includes a feature by which each time you enter in a bad uh, combination, it slows down. It like, it, it introduces a delay, right? So first mm-hmm. the delay is a minute and then it's five minutes and then it's an hour. Um, but that's a way of, of making it so that uh, the FBI can't just plug in its device and um, and have its computer sort of try and brute force the password. Um, I think that the, the numbers I've seen was that if there was no, um, without any kind of um, 
you know, mechanisms trying to prevent it within the iPhone, if, if Apple's able to, to disable it, uh, the FBI should be able to brute force it in about 22 hours. Um, you know, with the mechanisms in place, uh, we're probably more on the order of 22 years. So it, Apple's response is that you know, the government says this is just a, a one, one-off type of deal. We're just doing it in this one case. You know, what, what's the harm? And that... Um, they say there's no there's no assurance that this will only go stay within this this realm. You know, what if this gets out and what and other people can do it? Um, and they add that the implications are are quite extensive um, and go far beyond just this one order. And so um, we have to take a excuse me one second. Um, I'm sorry. And so it goes beyond just this one order. And uh, so we're going to talk about that more after these messages. Um, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm, sounds expensive. Actually, I signed us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking with Susan Hennessy. She is the editor of Lawfare Blog and uh, National Security Advisor at the Brookings Institute. And um, Susan, we were talking about the order. And it, what is your assessment? How... If you were advising Apple, what would you advise them to do? 
Right. So, look, Apple certainly has the right to uh, to challenge the order in court. Um, you know, if they, uh, you know, they're they're entitled to sort of to vindicate their rights there. Um, I'm not sure um, that this is going to um, to work out the way Apple wants. Um, I think that Apple. Um, uh, has staked out a position that is informed largely by a public relations strategy um, that is about being um, uncooperative uh, with law enforcement because they have a global uh, a global market market base and um, and need to uh, satisfy that market base. Um, they've uh, they've expressed relatively in relatively strong terms that they're not interested in sort of um, voluntarily cooperating with the government. Um, and I, I, I think that they do have a relatively strong case against the all Ritz in this case. Um, what the government is proposing is a new, uh, it's certainly a new read or application of the law. Um, you know, the, the case is being brought within uh, California, within the Ninth Circuit, um, a circuit that's certainly more favorable to tech, in, to tech interests than, um, than potentially some other circuits. Um, and so they, there is a real possibility that Apple could prevail, um, that, uh, prevail on its reading of the all Writs Act. Um, the problem is that the way it might prevail is by saying, is by a court saying, you know what, you're right. Uh, this is an area for Congress to legislate. Um, and so, you know, they might win the battle and lose the war because they'll end up with legislation, which is sort of necessarily a blunt instrument that, uh, that is not capable of, uh, of developing all that much nuance. Um, but, but there will be sort of a legislative response here, um, you know, because frankly, I, I think that the, uh, you know, electorate potentially outside of Silicon Valley um, might feel differently about their security values um, in terms of sort of, uh, you know, encryption standards or, um, or sort of in this case, uh, uh, Apple's ability to, uh, to, to maintain the capability to unlock a phone in a method that I think a lot of people would agree does not really threaten, uh, online security. Um, or at least maybe threatens it in theory, uh, but not in practice. Um, you know, versus, uh, the, the federal government's ability to investigate and prevent crimes. Um, you know, these are, these are real issues. There are real equities on both sides. Um, that said, it, you know, it will certainly be um, a fascinating case to follow. And it, it, it is a very tricky issue and one that has you know, potential for you backlash when you throw in the following elements. One, this is about which, an investigation into the San Bernardino shooting, uh, a mass shooting that may or may not have been inspired or had assistance from uh, you know, it, it, terrorist groups in, in in the Middle East, you know, including I, including ISIS, if you know, if not them, some other group, um, which clearly has the populace on edge. Um, in addition, there's a report in courts that Apple may have provided some level of assistance to China in this regard that has allowed some examination of its, you know, looking under its skirt, so to speak. In in, in that context, um, although it's been very vague as to what cooperation is, is enabled there, um, so no one really knows for sure what, what they've done there. And, and so you put those two facts together in, in such a charged environment, it could backfire. But then again, Apple is Apple. It's huge. It has, you know, so much, you know, billions in dollars, you know, across the globe. 
you know, maybe this is a, this is a test in today's day and age. You know, is is a corporate state bigger than a nation state? Right, and, and look, I think this gets at sort of um, uh, like an important point to make, which is that nobody should accuse Apple of wanting to protect terrorists or child pornographers or ordinary criminals. Um, you know, Apple might be purely motivated by what they say they are, which is uh, that they believe that uh, that strong online encryption standards are necessary um, and are and, and frankly they uh, frankly are more important than the ability to solve uh, particular types of crimes. Um, and that's and that's uh, you know a reasonable view, um, and it's it's reasonable of Apple to uh, to express that view and to exercise its uh, its speech rights to express it loudly. Um, I think that the the important thing for all of us to understand is that um, Apple is not the people of the United States of America. We get to decide through our elective representatives what our security values look like and our notions of civil liberty and our notions of uh, of what corporate responsibility and civic duty look like um, might not map to Apple's exactly. And so um, who we really need to be looking here uh, for leadership is not um, a Silicon Valley megacorp Corporation, but you know their job is their their job is to sell phones. Their responsibilities are to their shareholders and their bottom lines. Um, you know, and so these are not the people who should be setting kind of the thought leadership. You know, we should be looking to our elected representatives. Um, you know, we should be looking to the administration. We should be looking to Congress, and we should be looking to uh, mem- to accountable members of the executive branch. Uh, you know, to, to to ask them how they intend to uh, to strike the right balance. And and that is the issue. And uh, should and and in general, we right now there's an ongoing debate between the administration and the tech community over encryption, and this this notion that somehow, you know, a backdoor can be created and that will be usable only by the good guys and not the bad guys seems to be this myth that but that won't go away. I don't know what your thought on that is. The entire, like, sort of the framing of, uh, you know, the good guy, bad guy backdoor is. It's a little bit inaccurate on the technology, and then it's inaccurate in, in sort of the operational reality. So consider where we were with iOS 7. Apple has this alternate uh, operating system. This is not about being able to uh, to access uh, data in motion or, or sort of intercept communications as they move. This is about being able to uh, to access information on a device, the data at rest. Um, Apple's maintained this, cap- this capability for years. There's no known compromise. Um, you know, and and I think if people sort of understood how limited and and sort of securely protected this this capability is, um, they might say, you know, yeah, I get that. In theory, if the government could access it, then a bad guy could access it too, but. Gosh, if I was a bad guy and I knew that pe- most people don't update their systems and, uh, you know, I could buy a zero day on the Internet for $1,500, um, you know, and there's all these easy ways to commit crimes online, or I could try and break into Apple's uh, headquarters in Cupertino or somehow get my hands on their signing keys. Um, you know, if, if I was a bad guy, I think I'd probably go for the, the easier route. 
um, and so I think whenever we consider sort of um, what we're talking about here, which is not uh, which is not sort of the Silicon Valley framing of well, uh, you know, a backdoor is a backdoor, and anyone who anyone who uh, believes in facilitating lawful access either just doesn't understand the, the tech or. Um, you know, or wants to violate your civil liberties. I think it's it's a more nuanced discussion of that. You know, Director Comey uh, testified in um, in front of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee last week, and, and not only did he bring up the fact that they had not been able to decrypt uh, to open the uh, San Bernardino shooter case uh, shooter phone, uh, he also brought up the case of a woman in Louisiana who was murdered while she was eight months pregnant. Um, her body was found with her phone, and they have no leads in that case, and they're unable to unlock the phone. And so I think that whenever you think about, okay, what are the risks of creating a, a mechanism for government access, which are are not zero, but are probably not uh, as, oversta- as overstated as some uh, some members of the tech community or some members of the of an ideological community might want you to believe, uh, versus what would you want a company to do and to be able to do if that was your daughter or your mother or you. Um, you know, and so, so I think that these are really um, tremendously complex issues of, uh, of security values, online security values, physical security values, um, you know, privacy, it sort of, it, it all gets wrapped up in this. And so anyone who's trying to tell you be it the government or Congress or or Tim Cook trying to tell you that this is this is just a simple question. It's a simple question of X, Y, and Z. Like they they just they cannot be getting it right. Well, the, the, there is a simple answer. We only have a limited amount of time, but but about to run out. But I want to thank you. You did an excellent job of of explaining this very complex area, um, both in terms of the All Writs Act, which I'm sure you've done millions of interviews on before <laughs> today. <laughs> And and then CISA, but if for those um, in the short time we have left, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Um, so it's certainly they can come read my work and all of our other uh, excellent work at Lawfare Blog. Um, so it's uh, www.lawfareblog.com. Um, and then also I, uh, you know, I write frequently um, in my role at Brookings. So um, so hopefully uh, they can uh, they'll read that and then can reach out that way. And um, we have show notes on our blog, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. We have your Twitter account there. So check that out. Check us out on on Twitter at cyberlawradio and check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. Susan, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. And um, hopefully we'll have you back another time. This is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. Um, We'll see you back next week on another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report. has been a presentation of webmasterradio.fm the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network we welcome you to sample past episodes of this program as well as our complete library of programs on demand or on the air via our 24 7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Say goodbye. 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.